Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. Well, if you are a Christ follower, you pray every day to Jesus. You pray to the Heavenly Father through the name of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And when you pray to Jesus, you hear what you pray. Whether you pray out loud or you pray in the silence of your heart and mind, you hear the words you pray to Jesus. But you do not hear at least physically or even with clarity in your mind, the words that Jesus would say back to you. But what if you could hear Jesus pray to the Heavenly Father for you? Well, actually, in John chapter 17, you can. We continue our series, Mission Redemption. We've been going through the last section of the Gospel of John as we see the the climax of Jesus' fulfillment of his earthly mission, that which he was sent to earth to do by the heavenly Father to redeem us. His mission was our redemption. And as we... we rejoin the narrative, if you will, in John chapter 17. We're kind of picking up in the middle of Jesus' prayer. And this prayer really is the Lord's Prayer. Uh, there's a prayer that we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We all know that prayer from Matthew. But, but that really is more the model prayer. This is really the Lord's Prayer. This is his prayer for himself before he goes to the cross. This is his prayer for his remaining disciples. Uh, This is his prayer for you and for me. And so as we pick up the narrative, and we're in the middle of Jesus' prayer in John 17, he, just to remind you of the context, he has told the disciples that he will be leaving, that the Holy Spirit would come, And he is just hours now in the early morning of the day of his crucifixion. He and the disciples are making their way from the upper room through the city of Jerusalem. They've stopped somewhere, I think, for Jesus to pray, perhaps around the temple that would be lighted during the Passover. But they're on their way uh, through the Kidron Valley across to an olive grove called the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would be betrayed and arrested. And we hear him pray for you. And he did not pray for the absence of trouble or suffering in your life. He did not pray that you would experience prosperity or comfort or ease. But he prayed for something that you could be a part of that would reveal him to the world. And so one of the verses that we will see is the 23rd verse in John 17. But I want, to, I want to preview because it's kind of the hinge point of Jesus' prayer. And, and we'll see it as we go through the entire flow of the second part of John 17. But look at that first, I mean that one verse with me, John 17, 23. Jesus prayed, I am in them and you are in me. He prayed to the Father. May they experience, now look, such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. 
He prayed for all of those who truly belong to him by faith, all of those who are part of the body of Christ, that they would love each other so much that that love would overcome whatever differences that they might have and would bring them to a profound unity. So important. So today's big idea is this. Unity in the body proves the reality of God's love. We become living proof that God's love is real, that salvation is real, that the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God is real. Unity in the body proves the reality of God's love. And as we begin to unpack this concept of unity a little bit, I think at the outset it's important for me to say there is a difference between unity and uniformity. There's a difference. They sound a little bit alike, but there's a profound difference. Uniformity means that there is no difference of of ideas and perspective, that we all think alike and act alike and talk alike, and we're all just alike. Unity. And if you've been in a church for very long, you know there is no uniformity in God's church. There is no uniformity. We are diverse and different in so many different ways. But that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It gives variety to the family of God. It gives richness to the body of believers. Uniformity is not healthy. It's not needed or essential. But unity is. That in spite of our differences, the commonality that we had through faith in Jesus Christ would bring us to a unique oneness, would bring us to unity. And if you were here last week, you know, I said it has troubled me deeply that this last year of the pandemic, that we're, I was talking with somebody. By the way, it was so good to move and talk to people today. It was just, a, we are, it, it was good. Cindy and I are two weeks past the second shots when my son-in-law, our doctor, and my cardiologist said, okay, you can begin to mix a little bit. And I have missed doing that, so I came out of my hidey hole and and began to kind of move and get to to greet folks, and it it was so great. Uh, But anyway, it it has, we are all ready for this to be over. Can I just put it that way? You know, I'm ready to quit being the masked preacher and, you know, just just be normal. But here's what, what has grieved me and every other pastor in America so deeply is that this year of pandemic has brought divisions and strife in God's church in ways we've never seen before. People disagreeing with one another and being contentious toward one another and disrespecting one another. None of you, of course, but people in God's church have just allowed these things to divide them. And it's been heartbreaking. And I said last week, and and I'll restate it, when those kind of, of divisions in the body those unnecessary, fruitless divisions come, the enemy just sits back and laughs. He just laughs with glee. 
because it tarnishes the witness of God's church when the unity is diminished or destroyed. And yet it is the church for which Jesus died. It is the church for which Jesus gave his life to redeem us. That we were lost, condemned sinners that he has redeemed by his blood on the cross. And through the power of the Holy Spirit that he told the disciples about, that it is his will to conform us to the image of Christ progressively, theological term is sanctification, that the world would look at us and see him. And this was so important to Jesus that just before he faced his own death, he prayed for this. I don't want the significance of that to be lost on us. He prayed for us. Here's some of the things that we saw last week in Jesus' prayer in the earlier part of John 17. Jesus prayed for his disciples and for us. Verse 11, he prayed, protect them by the power of your name. He prayed for us in verse 13, so they would be filled with my joy. My joy. He prayed in verse 15, Father, keep them safe. From the evil one. And he prayed in verse 17, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, that they would be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so Jesus was praying not just for his 11 remaining disciples, he was praying for us. So let's pick up his prayer in verse 20 of John 17. He said, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Does that grab you? That makes it very personal for you and for me. That he was praying for us, not just the 11 disciples with whom he was walking toward his arrest and ultimately the cross. He was praying for all of the generations, every single Christ follower who would be redeemed by the blood of Christ, who would come to him in saving faith. And so no matter what your stage in life, Our mission here is to engage every generation to become Christ followers. So whether you are young or old or whatever your position or station or stage of life, he was praying for you. And that ought to say to you, you are not insignificant. You may sometimes feel like you're unimportant, nothing special about you. You are no big deal in the kingdom of God. That's a lie of the devil. You are significant to Jesus, so much so that he prayed for you and for your brothers and sisters today in the body of Christ. Verse 21, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. How are we going to convince 
a cynical, skeptical, secular culture. And by the way, our culture, our world, the population of our nation in which we live has never been more cynical, skeptical, and secular. But it's not as cynical, skeptical, and secular as it's going to become. So how do we convince that kind of increasingly godless culture that Jesus is real and the gospel is true and the Bible is the Word of God? How do we convince them that there is, there is a life beyond living on this planet that there is eternal life that you will spend somewhere, and that there's only one way to eternal life in heaven. How do we convince them it must be through the inexplicable unity of the body of Christ? That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus prayed. It was so important that at the, the very edge of the cross, he prayed for that. His prayer continues, verse 22. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. There's to be such a great difference between a group of believers, a body of believers, a local church, and the church worldwide. There's to be such a radical difference in the way that we relate to one another than the way unbelievers relate to each other that those who don't know Christ would look at us and the unity that we experience and that we live out in real and practical ways that they would look at us and just say, there's no no other explanation other than a supernatural work of God in the hearts and lives of a bunch of redeemed sinners, which is exactly what we are, just a bunch of redeemed sinners. I love the the Bill Gaither song that says, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, saved by grace. Jesus continued to pray, verse 24, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. I'll come back to that verse in a minute. Oh, righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. Verse 24 is very interesting to me. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have been walking on planet earth as a flesh and blood human being with these men, but I'm going back to heaven. He was about to be nailed to a cross. He would be in a borrowed tomb for three days. He would be gloriously resurrected. Hallelujah. He would be gloriously resurrected on that first Easter morning. 
and then he would walk around on earth for a few more days in his resurrected body, and then he would ascend to the Father. He would return to heaven, and he says in verse 24, I I think this is what he's saying, I can't wait for them to arrive home in heaven so we can walk around and see the glory that will reveal to them finally and fully who I really am glorious eternal God. But until then, but until then, I pray that while they're still here on earth and the generations that follow them, there would be a unity that would testify of who I am in the gospel I came to fulfill. Unity, not a unity of organizational structure. Churches are going to be structured differently. That's okay as long as it's a biblical model. Uh, Not a unity of worship styles. We've got four different worship styles on this campus every week. Some of you who love hymns and gospel music are really glad about that because that's what touches your heart. We recognize that. We don't have to be unified in worship style preference. Not necessarily a unity of theological doctrines. There, there are a lot of secondary doctrines outside the core beliefs of the gospel. There, there are a lot of ways in which Baptists disagree with Methodists, disagree with Presbyterians, disagree with Lutherans. And when we all get to heaven, then all of those will realize we Baptists were right all along. <laughs> but until then, it's okay to disagree over those things. I'm just kidding about that, sort of. We don't have to be unified in those kinds of ways, but we're talking about a unity of personal relationships, a unity of love and respect for one another. And can I tell you that that kind of unity, the kind of unity for which Jesus prayed, does not happen automatically? In fact, it doesn't happen easily. You have to fight for it. You have to sacrifice for it. I'm going to give you some specific ways from Scripture in just a moment. But it doesn't come naturally or easily. It must be something that that you struggle to preserve, that you realize that it's not about you. It's about something bigger. It's about something bigger grander than just our own puny individual ideas, opinions, and preferences. It's about the gospel. It's about the only thing that can save people from hell and take them to heaven. And the unity is something that you must work at. So, so, if guarding the unity of the body is given to us as a sacred trust, and it is, then how do we do that? I've spent the whole first half of the sermon talking about the importance of unity, how Jesus prayed for unity, how that is the the power of our witness as the church. So hopefully from the Scripture, you're convinced of that. It's important. It's essential. It's vital. If we love Jesus and the gospel is important. So hopefully we're all convinced it's important, but how do you do that? How do you guard the unity of the body? 
My opinions are not important. I want to show you six principles from Scripture, from the writings of Paul, that I think identify what we must do to guard the unity. And as we go through these scriptures, I want you to pay attention to every word. Sometimes when I use a lot of scripture in a message, it's easy to just kind of tune out, well, he's reading another, you know, long passage of verses. Don't do that. Listen to every word. It is the word of God. The word of God. How do we preserve the unity. There's some essential things that we do to guard the unity. Here's one. We seek together to learn God's truth and apply it to our lives and relationships. Hear Paul's words from Colossians 2, 6 and 7. And now, Just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Here's what Paul is saying. We have to grow in God's truth. It can become so easy to just come to church as a matter of routine, which we don't take as much for granted as we used to, right? Especially those of you online who do not yet feel it's safe. Hopefully someday soon we'll all feel like it's safe. We can be back together. But it's so easy just to kind of take it all in and sing songs and and hear a sermon and go home the same as the way we came. We must not do that. Both in our corporate teaching and in your daily study, I pray you are, daily study of the Word of God must not just fill our heads, it must change our lives. We are changed. We grow. And the tragedy is that some Christ followers get to this this mediocre level of spiritual maturity and they just get stuck because they're not allowing the Word of God to fill their heart, mind, and life and change them. And if we're going to guard the unity, we've got to be growing in the truth of God. Amen? Here's a second. To guard the unity of the body, we embrace humility and reject arrogance as we worship and grow together. Embrace humility and reject arrogance. I continue in the book of Colossians, this time chapter 3, start with verse 12. Hear these words. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves. Don't you like that? The holy people he loves. You must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. 
I love this last part. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns. We really like that, right? And spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. Oh, did you hear those words? What a beautiful description of health in the body of Christ. Listen to these key words from that passage again. Listen, mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love, harmony, peace, richness, counsel, wisdom, thankful hearts. If that describes a body of believers, that body of believers becomes a powerful testimony for the gospel in the community in which it is planted. Here's another thing we must do. We treat others with unfailing respect and kindness. Unfailing respect and kindness. Hear what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, beginning with verse 23. Very straightforward. Again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only starts fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach, and be patient with difficult people. Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he's describing to him what a godly servant leader looks like in the church. But the reality is all the things that he tells Timothy in First and Second Timothy about leaders ought to be true about all Christ's followers, about all of us, the same qualities. And so he just he just lets Timothy understand, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. Can I tell you there's been a lot of that in the last year in God's church? And the worst place is social media. And the heartbreaking thing is that some Christ followers get all ramped up about uh, this argument or that argument that has nothing to do with the gospel. And Paul says, don't do that. Have your opinions. Everybody can have their opinions, but do not let that become divisive in the body of Christ. If you disagree with somebody, okay, Give them respect. Show them kindness. Let them have their opinion. Even if you're a thousand percent convinced they're wrong. Even if they don't know what's true because they don't know Christ. Show people respect so that the witness of the gospel will be preserved. Here's another. To preserve the unity of the church, we consider the needs of others more than our own opinions and desires. In the book of Philippians, Paul is addressing that that early church, and there were some things going on with them. And and so he, he 
grabs them. I want, I want you to kind of capture this feeling in Philippians 2. Paul says to those early believers, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. This is one of the powerful if-then statements in Scripture. There are many of them where, where Paul or one of the other writers says, if this is true, then this is true. And the if is this. Paul says, do you really love Jesus? Has he really changed your heart? Are you really a Christ follower? Then if you are, show it by being unified, by showing love by showing kindness. And in verse 3, he says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. And I think this is something that is so desperately needed in this last year. Don't try to push your opinion on somebody else as if winning an argument is going to really achieve anything productive. Instead, keep the gospel. Think of others as better than yourselves. Well, here's another. If we're going, and this is a big one, by the way. If we're going to preserve the unity of, of, of the church, we use our words to help and heal, but never to hurt. We use our words to help and heal, but never to hurt. One verse, Ephesians 4.29, I like the translation of the NIV, the New International Version. Listen. Paul said, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Or we could expand that in a modern context and say, do not let any unwholesome talk be posted by you on social media. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Well, I could spend a whole sermon on this, but I don't have time. The power of words. Uh, Do you remember what James said about the tongue? Let me read just one verse of that passage from James chapter 3. It says, It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. Wow. The power of our words. And here's the thing, though. Our words are powerful to bring help and healing. But our words are powerful to bring hurt and division and destruction. And how our words impact the testimony of the gospel and the body of Christ is up to us. One more. Just just one more. We put the unity of the body of Christ and the advance of the gospel above all other agendas. All other agendas. One last passage, this one from Ephesians as well, chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Listen to this powerful description of the body 
of Christ. Paul said, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. And then I love this last verse. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Mm. That, my friends, is what the body of Christ is to be. So, what do I challenge you to do with this? Two quick next steps. Here's the first one. If you know a wound in the body of Christ, do your part to seek to heal it. Especially if you helped inflict it. But even if you didn't, if you know a wound in the body of Christ, do what God would lead you to do to try to be an agent of healing and reconciliation and restoration to restore the unity that is the will of God and the prayer of Jesus for his body. If you know a wound in the body of Christ, do your part to seek to heal it. And then number two, pray as Jesus prayed. Pray for unity among his believers. It's so important because unity in the body proves the reality of God's love. Let's pray. Father, we pray for unity in the body. We pray that we would not get distracted by secondary issues and that we would keep in our hearts and minds a focus on the gospel, upon the witness of the church to people who have not yet been redeemed. Lord, we give you thanks and praise and glory that those of us who know you by faith have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, that, that redemption, that glory is is proclaimed by the unity of his body. Help us not to do anything to distract, divide, or destroy that unity. In the name of our Savior, whom we love and serve, we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you, everybody. Have a great week.